Hello and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. We've got guitar professor Julian Casper with us this week. Julian's played all over the world at festivals like the International Guitar Festival in London. He's played as a sideman for years, and he also has an acclaimed career as a band leader with three full-length albums. He joins us for a great conversation. He uncovers his philosophy of finding your sound, how and what to practice, and how to get noticed on the scene. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Julian Casper. Hi, my name's Julian Casper, and you are on Berkeley Guitar Department Coffee Talk. <laughs> Thanks, Julian. Welcome. So, uh, hi everyone. I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department and welcome to another coffee talk. Uh, today we're really excited to have uh, guitar professor Julian Casper with us. So, hey Julian. Hi, happy to be here. Great. And Cheryl Bailey is here, assistant chair of the guitar department. Hello. Hi Cheryl. And Ian Steed, our senior coordinator. Hey Ian. Hey, coffee cheers. Coffee hey, coffee cheers. I got my afternoon coffee. Julian, did you finish your coffee today? Or oh, you have it. Oh, ah, got the mug. He's the got mug. the mug. I, I wanted my old one. Uh, it's locked up in my office at eleven forty. It's the one. that's the old one that says Berkeley College of Music on one side, and then on the side facing the student, it says Go Home and Practice. That's a good one. We should bring that one back too as our next design. But for those of you who are listening and not watching, um, Julian and I both have the Berkeley Guitar Department coffee yes. mug that we made last year for faculty. I brought so, mine home. That's so great. Yeah, Jim Kelly was also lamenting today that his is in the office and we were teasing him because he he put a, his name on it, like he labeled it. And uh, we were teasing him that that some of the on-campus faculty were using it when oh, he yeah. wasn't around. It might be me, maybe I'm using it. You should take a picture of yourself with Jim's coffee mug and send it to him, flip him out. I might have a key to his room. You know, that could be like a ploy, like in that movie Amelie with they had the little trolls and they take pictures of them everywhere. We could get Jim's mug and take pictures of them, of it all over the world. That's a great idea. That's a really good idea. That's great. Um, that was the first technology I think that Jim experimented with was the label maker to make his, his name. Absolutely. You know? well, I, uh, <laughs> I, I tried to have, well, I actually had him on a gig um, I had him on a double bill thing when I was doing a residency at a club in Somerville, maybe a couple of falls ago. And I, and the uh, promoter was asking, you know, what Jim was going to do to promote the concert. And I said, he's going to put a, a bullhorn on the roof of his car and he's going <laughs> to drive around Cambridge. <laughs> That's a, the extent of his technological savvy. <laughs> well, not anymore. <laughs> Apparently not, no. That's but great. So Julian never play great. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Um, Julian, what do you what do you drink for coffee? Like what's your go to? Um, I drink espresso. So right now I have um, I have decanted a double shot of a espresso into my Berkeley guitar department mug. Nice. And that's what I drink in the afternoon. In the morning, it's a cappuccino. Nice. And I, I don't roast my own beans like Cheryl. I haven't gone to that point yet 
Um, I can I hook do, you up, though, if you ever you know, want a little <laughs> I, I home roast. It's a good idea. I, I know that it's supposed to take it to the next level, but at least I grind my beans, so I'm, I'm, I'm not a complete Philistine. That's great. That's good. Well, I mean, we would expect nothing less, really, from hearing play. Um, so the next question we generally ask um, is about your first day at Berkeley or, or your first days, like what you remember when you came. And um, did you, you came in right as a faculty member. Is that true, Julia? Yes. What, what do you remember about that? Well, I remember the, actually the, the whole, the whole process was, was really unusual. And I don't think it would happen this way anymore. And, and I don't think it would be because of the three of you. I think it's just because things have become much more regimented in terms of getting a gig at Berkeley. Uh, but basically, to make a long story short, the chair of the guitar department in North Texas um, gave me Rick Peckham's home phone number. But I didn't know it was his home phone number. So I called up and he answered the phone like people used to do when they didn't have caller ID in 1996, or maybe he didn't, maybe, I don't know. But he, um, he answered the phone and I, and I was startled. I thought I was just gonna leave him a message. And I said, hi, Rick, Fred Hamilton gave me your number and I might be moving up to Boston. And if I do, may I please have a gig teaching at Berkeley <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. And, and he said, send me a recording he didn't say send me your curriculum vita mm -hmm. you know he didn't say your resume he didn't say submit it here or any of that he just mm -hmm. said send me a recording and that really impressed me mm -hmm. and so i sent him a recording and on on side a of the cassette was my some studio work i had just done um some original tunes i'd written and with some great players, I was working with uh, Keith Carlock on drums and, and a really great uh, bass player uh, from Dallas named James Driscoll. And so the side one was the originals and side two was my graduate jazz recital at North Texas. Oh, wow. And he said, call me in two weeks. So I, I called him in two weeks and he said, yeah, if you're coming to Boston, you, you know, look me up, you got a gig. Nice. That's basically what it, that's how it all went down and, you know, kind of in a nutshell. And I, so I went over to the, uh, went over to 1140 Boylston when I got to Boston and, and walked into 5P2, which, no, sorry, 5P1, which used to be the guitar department office. The whole mm -hmm. guitar department was on the fifth floor of the 1140 building. And I, I went in and, and there was a, a bald guy standing there and I said, Hey, I'm looking for Rick. Rick Peckham. And he said, I'm Rick Peckham. <laughs> and I introduced myself and he basically collared me and, you know, and just dragged me into Larry Beyond's office and they interviewed me. And then it was, okay, well, the first thing you're going to do is guitar sessions because it was in early August of 96. And I said, what's that? Don't worry about it. <laughs> Don't worry about it. <laughs> You'll be fine. <laughs> You know, you're gonna you're gonna teach some ensembles, and I said, well, what kind of ensembles? Well, we'll let you know right before it starts, and and that was basically the way the whole experience started. Was just okay. Well, you're gonna start teaching in the fall. Well, what do I do? Don't worry about it. Here are the Levitt books. Boom. 
use them if you want or come up with your own stuff. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was really it. I, I had immediately good students, immediately impressive students um, and motivated students. And within the first day or so, um, I was in a room, I was actually in the room that I still teach in, well, my non-pandemic room, which is 5P2 and 1140. Mm -hmm. And that office was shared by Jim Kelly, Mike Williams, and John Finn, and then me. So Mm -hmm. all these guys were were coming in and out. So I met all these guys right away. So it was very very eye-opening and and motivating and hearing all the great playing in the hallways and the students and the faculty. So That's, this, yeah. I was just impressed that it was all about the music. From the beginning, it was all about the music. How do you play? What mm-hmm. is your music like? Mm-hmm. Those were the criteria. I, Rick told me later that he, um, that he actually called up Dan Hurley and Ed Soph and some of the, the people at North Texas to, to find out if, you know, maybe I was a meth head or something, <laughs> you know. Make make sure I was, you know, I was on the up and up, and and I guess they gave me the, the thumbs up. That's always the joke, right? Yeah. You know, you get a good impression from someone's playing and talking to them, and then you contact their references to make yeah. sure right. they're not a serial killer or something. Right. That's what. Yeah. <laughs> that's the academic joke behind the scenes, but you know. Um, so my question to you is. Um, you came to Berkeley at a time when things were becoming more and more stylistically diverse. And that clearly has to be something that Rick and Larry saw in you, whether through your music or through just your ability to say yes, when they said, don't worry about it, we'll have you do a bunch of different things. I guess if you had said, well, I only do one thing, then they would have known, well, it probably won't work out. So I guess my question is coming from UNT, which is a really renowned jazz school. Do you feel like you always had a multi-stylistic influence or part of your music that helped you feel comfortable in this kind of environment where, where students are going to be doing different stylistic things? Well, I think in, in terms of the, the UNT part of the equation, uh, that really has nothing to do with my my level of diversity in any case that has to, to do with my years and years of just making a living, you know, in the trenches as a guitar player out gigging and, and, and being completely freelance for a long time. Mm-hmm. So when I got to UNT, that was all part, that was another just accident. Like I didn't really mean to go there to get my master's. It just sort of fell in my lap and, and I took advantage of the situation uh, but I will say, while I was there, Fred Hamilton was pretty liberating because I actually did go through a, a, a real crisis in terms of wondering what I was and who I was as a musician. I've always had kind of this spark, you know, the ephemeral, that fleeting sonic vision that you have when you're maybe in your late teens of what you ultimately really want to sound like. and most people, I think most musicians get that and they strive towards that. And of course, then we all have all these detours and, and my detours were making a living, wanting to be nothing but a player and 
having all those things come up that, you know, all gigs that I didn't expect to do, country and so on and so forth. Um, but when I, after going to Miami and doing the jazz thing there at school and also playing pretty steady, a couple of pretty steady jazz gigs during the week and then doing a steady blues rock gig on the weekend as a, um, in the house band at Tobacco Road, which was kind of an iconic club down there for a long time. I, I got to North Texas and I was really confused about, well, am I a jazz guy mm -hmm. or am I a rock guy, a blues guy? Like, what do I, who am I and what do I do and how am I going to put all this together? Um, and Fred was classic. He just told me not to worry about it and just do what I do and, and, um, and put it together in the most natural possible way. And he encouraged me to write and he encouraged me to form my own trio. And, and in fact, in my last semester at grad school there, he, he asked me what I wanted to do. He said, hey, it's your last semester. What do you want to do? And I said, I want to write a new tune at the end of the week and uh, every week, sorry. And then at the end of the semester, I want to give an additional recital for the guitar departmental in addition to my regular graduate recital with um with keith and james and and he said great that sounds great start writing and bring me a new tune next week and within a couple of weeks i was thinking idiot you know why did you do that <laughs> but it got me writing really aggressively and and it also got me really thinking about who i was and what i wanted my music to be like so yeah that's so, amazing i mean I, I was thinking as you're talking that the, often when you are a multi-stylistic player, it's sometimes intimidating or challenging to go to a school that has a more stylistically, um, na not narrow, but defined route. And um, I, I have been in that position myself a few times. Um, and uh, did you, so this is great to hear that that when you went to North Texas, you found this teacher who really embraced that for you and, and helped you in that way. Did you ever feel any blowback when you were studying, either at Miami or North Texas, maybe not from the teachers, but from other, um, other students or players? And how did that sort of help you define who you were? Did it make you question things or how did you deal with that? I got some blowback from certain faculty um, at Miami and maybe a little bit at North Texas, but, but not usually the guitar faculty. Um, mm -hmm. Just the old, hey, what are you playing a Stratocaster for? Where's your hollow body? You know, hey, you can't bend a string. And, and I was going, yeah, but wait, you know, John Schofield, you know, hey, it's safe now. I can do this. And, and um, <laughs> so there, there was a little bit of it, but I, I didn't really worry about it. And, and I think also part of it for me was realizing that fundamentally I'm not a jazz guitarist. I'm a jazz musician, but I'm a rock guitarist. And Ooh, it, you have to go into that more. You got to yeah. deepen that for everybody. What does that mean to you when you say that? That's well, so fascinating. I had to, you know, I had to recognize that um, as good as I could get at being a, a jazz guitar person that I was already surrounded by people that actually were like they had that that was their calling okay 
you know, and, and I saw that and I could hear that in the middle, I could sense it and I could feel it. And I, and even as I became very adept with the language of jazz, of, of bebop and then post-bop and then so-called modern jazz, post Wayne Shorter, I just, um, I didn't, I really didn't feel that I had the, I didn't have the, the actual feel for it. Like, like it wasn't deep within me. I could not convey myself in a soulful manner um, as a player that way. So I had, I had to connect um, to my roots as, as a rock and blues guitarist to really truly feel and, and express who I am and what I do. But the harmony, deep, sophisticated harmony fascinates me and I love it. And, and I feel, I feel it. And, you know, classical music is at the core of my listening probably more than anything. And, and of course, as I mentioned, Wayne Shorter and Mingus and Monk and all these composers are, are um, very deep parts of my musical consciousness. So I have to, my own music and my own music in whatever humble way I can, I try to, I try to incorporate richer harmony and then I try to play the way I play over that. But the trick is for it not to be fusion in the pejorative sense. Mm, you uh, might have to also talk about that a little bit. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate what people do when they do it well, um, but there is a certain um, density in machismo and slickness that goes with a lot of fusion that um, kind of rubs me the wrong way. So I think part of the, one of the, well, some of the more important things about defining who you are and what you want to do as a musician is also understanding what you, who you aren't and what you don't want to be and how you want to be perceived if you care about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So to me, I, I embrace a certain element of fusion when it was vital and, and there was an energy and a rawness and, and um, an urgency, like a, this, this need to get the music out there, like Mahavishnu and old Billy Cobham stuff. And, and, and then Jeff Beck, you know, leaning more to the rock and, and the kind of groove bluesy side of things. So mm -hmm. those, that was that sort of my, my niche, but with maybe, you know, not the odd times and the density of Mahavishnu, but with more harmony than Jeff Beck. So I kind of saw a, um, I saw a path down the middle mm. and, and as a, as a player, as a writer, that's kind of the, that's my, that's my zone. But I, um, but I still play jazz. I play tunes every day. The first thing I do when I pick up my guitar is I, I play a tune you know, mm. I play, I like to play music and I encourage, I play duets with my students all the time. And, for a while, I was actually going out and doing jazz gigs still, or I'd play like the Beehive, whatever may have happened to that. And the first set, just to keep myself out of trouble, I would bring my 335 and I would play standards. And then the 335 would get set down and I'd do my originals the rest of the night. That's and I'd great. always work with musicians that could do that. So, um, yeah, it's always a part, it's all part of me. And I can go and do a blues gig or I can play a funk gig. and. I've even played country, you know, mm -hmm. 
that was part of the part of the making a living. You got some Austin in you. You got a little Austin, Texas in you. Yes. Well, yeah. Well, and also actually living in Austin was mm -hmm. really eye-opening. But it was funny. I was actually playing more fusion in Austin, like real fusion in Austin, <laughs> ironically. I didn't play that much roots music, but when I got up to the North Texas area, they were, uh, I was looking for gigs and, and I was going out to all the jam sessions and sitting in with people and, and you know passing out my number and and people would say hey well you can if you want a gig right away if you can play country you will be gigging tomorrow night because there are more country gigs around here than there are country guitar players that's crazy so i started getting calls hey i heard you're a good little picker <laughs> <laughs> well yeah. I have to tell you that even for a classical musician in Austin, there there were these places, like I had a trio of cello and flute and we did this music that was kind of rootsy and it had some improvisation in it. And there were these venues like Rudamaya where it was like kind of half acoustic and then it would go electric and, and you could have your beers and it was kind of open air sometimes. And um, there was one gig that we had where we were opening for this like New Orleans funk band and their um, their kind of tagline was swampy and funky. So unfortunately in the ad, I can't remember the name of the band, but it said the name of the band and then it said swampy and funky with Kim Perlack. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> I kept that one. I was like, oh, okay, so what are you going to do? I mean, everybody showed up and in, uh, in their Westerns, Western shirts and had some beers and it was pretty good. Yeah. Well, it was one thing I really loved about Austin, and I don't know if that culture is still there, but I, you could go out at the time, any night of the week and find live music, mm -hmm. and it was often good. But the, the, the amazing thing about it is that people would go out to hear music for the very reason that they didn't know who the people playing were and they wanted to find out. Can you imagine such a thing? Hey, let's go down to the Continental Club. I've never heard that band before. Let's check them out. And musicians would come hear you. Like yes. if I played at the Cactus Club or if um, you, there's always musicians in the audience or you'd walk down Rainy Street, which was this kind of area. And, you know, it's just musicians at certain times of the week moving their amps or whatever. And, you know, someone who knows someone. It was a nice feel. I Again, maybe it's all changed in the last few years, but. It was really nice. Yeah, know. I love living. I really loved living there. I, when I moved to Miami, and I went to Miami because they gave me the biggest scholarship, and they didn't have a they didn't have a jazz guitar program really at, at UT Austin at the time. Right. And so my my options were Berkeley, UNT, Miami. and Miami, and then to a lesser extent USC and. Mm -hmm. And so I sent my stuff out there and you and uh, Miami gave me the most money. So I said, Oh, I guess I'm going to Miami. I don't really want to go to Miami, but also when you live in Austin, the thought of moving to the Dallas area is unthinkable. Yeah. It is. A, it is horrifying. Uh -huh. you know, and it's like far. Dallas. Yeah. It's far and you don't want to go up there and it's just a big sprawl and all this and that, you know, it's a whole <laughs> it thing. Is so true. The <laughs> ultimate contempt for Dallas. If you live in Austin. I, I would ask my students, I'd be like, well, are you going to think about going to college like far away? Would you go up north? And they're like, to Dallas. 
Yeah. <laughs> like, no, like to Chicago right. or New York. And they're like, wait, what? Like, as long as it's not Dallas, I guess we're okay. But yeah. And I used to, when I'd wake up at night in Miami and I, having been in the middle of a dream about swimming in Barton Springs or something, I just would, man, I missed it so much. And it's an odd place. Like in that gig, um, we were playing at one point and I heard a fourth voice and I thought maybe some drunk person was singing along or something. I was kind of horrified and I looked up and there was a parrot, like the parrot from the cigar place. There was a famous African gray parrot that lived down the street and it really loved acoustic sets and they forgot to tell us and it came and sat in the rafters and it had like pitch. So, you know, the flute would be like, and then the parrot go, wah, 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 wah. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> the whole gig. And somewhere it's on tape somewhere. Somebody's got yeah. it. <laughs> um, so yeah, you don't get a lot of stories like that in other towns. So no, no, really no, I, I still miss it. But I, I think the Austin I miss is an Austin that's no longer there. That might be true. Um, might be true. Cheryl, what are you thinking about in, in this conversation so far? Well, a couple things. I mean, one, it was great that your uh, your teacher encouraged you to write, especially when you're at that point. I guess that maybe you get to these points and you're questioning, who am I? What am I, you know? What am I going to become? Where am I going? And that you were encouraged to write, or you actually you set yourself up in the position to write, but through writing you really found your voice because that's, you know, no one else can tell you how to play it because it's yours right. <laughs> or what it should sound like. This should be a fusion thing. This should be a blues thing. Well, it doesn't matter. It's, you know, it's Julian's thing or it's Kim's thing or it's Ian, you know what I mean? Like those are, I think, I mean, I could say that myself, that was really a turning point for me in terms of feeling confident about what my voice was, was through playing original music. So that's, that was, amazing that that happened to you right at that time because it got you focused in that and also just you know you talking about all the different styles that you play and I mean I think that's common because we just love great music right we don't think you know as musicians I feel we we don't we have maybe a style that we play but of course we just love great music right. um, but that made me think about your your class your lab that you teach the uh, proficiency apps, mm -hmm. right? Because that's so cool because so many, we have so many students of all these different styles who are probably going through the same thing. They don't know who they are as a guitarist or artist yet. And you found a way to take the stuff that is universal, that's why we call it the proficiency, right? It's, it's all the things we've agreed upon makes not only a functioning guitarist, but a great guitarist and a successful guitarist, right? these things, but on paper, they're kind of dry, right? you know? So um, maybe you could talk a little bit about how you develop that or what kind of materials or sources that you use to, um, in that situation. Because obviously you've, you've had experience and, and joy and passion for all those different parts of yourself as a musician. Well, that class was something that was kind of lurking in the back of my mind when I first got to Berkeley um, in any case. And it, it stayed there for a while, but probably the original inspiration for that class was Mick Goodrick's book, The Advancing Guitarist, which I, I believe is the greatest book ever written for guitar. 
because it just says, here it is. Find the beauty in it. And it, it exposes you to things. So all you have to do is just read through it and get an idea of how to, of how you might practice something. And it, and it says nothing about a genre, style, nothing. It's just the stuff, but not, hey, here's 101 bebop leaks you should know if you want to be successful. Nothing like that. It's not even like the classic, you know, patterns for jazz or anything like that. It's just here are ideas and you can make of them what you want. And it has nothing to do with style. So I thought that taking uh, that, that book was the impetus and then taking material like that vamps, um, chord voicings using, using open strings, drones, a lot of the material that he opens that book with, um, and just extrapolating it through all the different modes, all of them that you learn uh, throughout the creative, throughout the uh, proficiency process, you know, in the four semesters. And then to a lesser extent, maybe investigating the stuff that happens afterwards in the cycles and so on and so forth. But the um, really getting in the, inside the sound of the modes is a, an important part of that finding voicings that are appealing, things that make their, you know, the students' eyes light up and they go, whoa, that's what, you know, Lydian augmented sharp nine sounds like, you know, that's pretty cool. I, you know, that can, I can, I can use that. Uh, and there's also, there's a part of, um, there's a thing that guitar players do, and that is they, we all have done it and we all probably continue to do it, is that you can divorce yourself from knowing the instrument and immerse yourself in the mystery of the instrument. And when you do that, beautiful things that you did not know were there can emerge. But then what are they? Like, what, what have you discovered? What is this bizarre sound that you've discovered? And, and you can kind of reverse engineer that by understanding, well, it could be a modal sound that could actually be Lydian augmented sharp nine. So, Taking that as a jumping off point and then actually writing with it is where that is really coming from. So for, for that lab, I have them write a, a midterm and final, and they have to write and perform a tune using the materials from the proficiency, usually modal, but we go through all kinds of stuff. Like I said, upper structure triads and drones and vamps, dyadic material, on and on and on. I don't know if I answered the question. <laughs> No, that's a great, and wow. I, do you have an opening next semester, maybe? <laughs> Asking for okay. a friend. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. honestly, it'd be good to sit in. Chat. <laughs> we may be dropping in. Sure, of course. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's really important. I think it's because I think Cheryl's right, and I, you are right, that it's often too easy to just say, well, this is what I learned for the test, and this is what I warm up with, as opposed to thinking of it all as building blocks for music. It's all music. It's not just, I mean, what is the music made of? It's made of this stuff, if you understand how it's made. Right, well, I, I got tired also of hearing people say, well, I don't need this stuff. I'm never gonna use this stuff. You know, I'm, 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 a, I'm a metal guy. I'm not gonna use this stuff or, Hey, I'm a bebop player. What do I need harmonic major for? 
all, you know, silly things like that. So I'm a singer songwriter. All I need is one, six, four, and five. So I, I just got tired of, of, of hearing that sort of thing. And, and I just wanted to say, okay, well, here's your, your opportunity to, you know, that you'll have no more excuses if you take this lab to say that you don't need any of this material. And in fact, I've had, it's so funny just to have pe when people, you know, you'll have particularly good, I'll have a really nice class, you know, occasionally. <laughs> Most semesters I'll have some people that are really, really serious about it. And then some semesters I'll have like a golden age of all really, you know, you know what I'm talking about. The collective consciousness of the lab is just there and everybody's, it's like playing a great gig where everybody's really on board with it. Mm -hmm. um, and they'll, uh, they'll do these, they'll write these compositions that are amazing. And so I'll have singer songwriter people writing really fresh sounding things and magnum opus, prog rock, dream theater, metal cats, you know, bringing in these scores that are like, you know, you gotta, they gotta drag them across the stand and playing these things that I could never learn. They're too long and complicated. And I'm, you know, it's amazing what we'll, they'll come up with in the end. That's great. Um, well, you know, that's what you're really talking about. It's just the universality of all these things. I mean, all music is is melody, harmony, and rhythm. That's the definition of music, right? <laughs> and how you you how you want to use it or how you want to interpret it. You know, then we get into style. But um, yeah, I think that's that's really a great moment to see that when you see people that maybe didn't give it any credence or said, yeah, I don't need that. And then they dig into it and they come up with something they couldn't have even imagined. I, I, that's what's just so fun about, you know, teaching any of these classes, the creativity. You give everybody the same ex assignment, you know, you have to work in this modality or you're using the scale of this harmony and then just the creativity that comes back is, is I love it. It keeps, every week I can't wait, like, wow, are these guys gonna come up with this yeah. week? Yeah, I learn from them every week. Ian, this makes me think of a question that you are asking often in these conversations. Yeah, so Julian, there's a question that we generally asked everybody. Um, and that is, uh, like, as somebody who has come in, you've taught a lot of students, and you've gone to uh, different music schools, you know, you, um, you deal with a lot of like these issues. Like, I think that that's actually a good uh, segue talking about the way that these students don't really realize um, the sort of wealth of these, like these tools at their disposal that they might not even realize that are there for somebody who's a singer songwriter in harmonic major, right? Um, but also sort of more broadly, pedagogically, like what are some things that students generally come in and they might not even realize to ask that maybe they th should be thinking of? Oh, all of them, <laughs> all of the questions. <laughs> Most of the time, I think you'll probably all agree. If you ask your student, do you have any questions? They usually come up blank. Mm. So, because you put them on the spot. And of course, their very presence here at Berkeley 
belies the fact that they have nothing but questions. So I, so I, I tell them, I tell them to write their questions down throughout the week and come in with them the following week. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. I was about to ask that question. Like, do you think, what is the thing that flips the switch for them with you? Is it their comfort with you? Is it their comfort in the lesson format? What, what do you think makes the difference? I think you have to, I, I feel like I have to get past a certain point with students to, to where they can really open up to me and they, and they generally do. Um, I think one really important component of that is actually understanding who they are and what they do as musicians because chances are if they're there to begin with, one would hope they're pretty serious and they probably have something that is not you know, there's not going to be immediately apparent to a teacher, mm. particularly if they're maybe not, you know, overwhelmed with self-confidence. <laughs> you know, there's a little bit of, you know, if their nerves or um, they're shy. But. I try to get to what their music is if they have any, and I try to find out what their strengths are right away. Um, even if it just means listening to a recording or seeing a video, um, getting them to share that with me in the class and just so I can say, wow, you really have something special and this is what it is. Right. Otherwise, they're only showing you maybe they're not their strongest side as a player. Right. Yeah. If it's not part of their experience, if if they come in and, you know, the same thing, hey, how's it going? Let's play a blues. And, and you know, they, they can't keep form on a 12-bar blues. And, you know, the first thing you go is, well, you can't keep form on a 12-bar blues. What's the matter with you? You know, that's really not the approach to take. That, that, that The obvious issue there is that they haven't been exposed to that music and it's not part of their, their history and it's not part of their consciousness. So... I I find out what it is they do and what they do well. That's great. And then I'll make them learn how to play a <laughs> Well, you know, that ties in to a theme that Cheryl has picked up on many times. Um, and so I want to ask a question and then sort of turn it over to her, which is, so you have, you find out what people are good at and what makes them themselves, but then as you just said, there's also that moment where you have to help them grow so that they don't just kind of say, well, this is what I'm good at and this is where I'm comfortable, so I'm not going to go out of my comfort zone. And there's part of that that's just personal because you want people to grow and develop. But then there's also this necessity in life, like the unexpected is the theme that Cheryl often references. And you've referenced it many times without even really thinking about it. Well, I didn't mean to go to Miami. I didn't mean to go to North Texas. I, well, I was this kind of player and then I studied jazz and then I didn't even mean to teach at Berkeley. Really. I got this call and you know, like you have to be ready. I had a teacher used to say luck favors the prepared, you know, so somehow you were also prepared. So if you take that question back to the origin, like part one is how do you help people feel secure in what they're good at, but then also have the courage to move beyond that and then 
how do you help them get ready for the unexpected? Well, first I have to find out what, how far they're going to push the parameters in, in terms of what the unexpected may be. And it depends on what their goals are, I think. And of course, those things are going to shift and they're going to evolve as, as life has a you know funny way of playing tricks on you. Um, but I, it's a, it's a little bit hard to answer. I think really the, um, oh, if they're going to be, if they're going to be players, if they're going to be working musicians, then I try to, I, I try to put them on the spot as much as I can. You know, once I know that, that they're, that's their goal in life. So it's a, it's a, a weekly, you know, event of, you know, a, a, like the gauntlet of challenges when they walk into the lesson, you know, what are they going to have to read? What are they going to have to improvise on? And um, will I make them transcribe something, you know, within a week and bring it back and play it the next week? And I, I'm very clear that school is not the same as real life. I, I object to teachers saying, hey, this is just like a gig. You got to show up to your own. You know, no, it's not the same as a gig. It's school, but it has its own set of requirements and obligations, and it can help you to form those sorts of habits. So I make them prepare things in very short amounts of time and, and um, make them read a lot. So there's a, there's a lot of on the spot kind of stay on your toes sort of activities in, in my lessons and in my classes. Um, and I let them know that the uh, expectations are, are very high from one week to the next. And I think um, if they say something like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to um, really be a performing player. I want to be a, an engineer, then I'll make them record things. <laughs> bring them back to me. So it, it just, whatever they say, I, I pretty much find an answer for it. I, I want to get into film scoring. Well, how many films have you scored? <laughs> you <know>? Why don't <laughs> you score something and bring it back? Mm. So it's just, it's no matter what they say, I, I just hold their feet to the fire on it. And, mm. and that's being being ready for the unexpected at all times is i think is absolutely essential if you want to make a living as a musician yeah I'm also just saying yes to everything i mean i i said yes to every single gig i ever got called for unless i had another gig already mm -hmm. and it wasn't until actually i when when i moved to Boston the first few years I was at Berkeley, I actually took a post-it note that said no, and I put it on my phone. Because <laughs> I said yes to everything, including the Berkeley gig. And I had gigs of, you know, all kinds coming at me and I had no time for myself. And, you know, I would walk out of the classroom and go to the airport or get in mm -hmm. a van or, you know, get in my car and go play some, you know, something either good or, or horrible somewhere in New England. And I, I, you know, I just thought, okay, now is my time. It, I kind of, kind of dawned on me, wait a minute, I have a teaching gig. I can concentrate on my own music now. I don't have to do all these other things, but it was a good position to be in. 
of course, there were a lot of gigs then too. Right. And now I'm now I have to think about how to prepare people. Maybe I'll go with my great hope, which is that once this is all said and done, this strange period we're in now, that we're going to have a return to the roaring twenties, right? And everybody <laughs> want to be together, and everybody want to hear live music, and mm. and people want what's real. And so yeah. that's that's my hope. Cheryl, what do you think about that? Do you have additional thoughts about that topic? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that is the attitude for success and also finding yourself is to say yes to everything. I mean, mm -hmm. I definitely have that. I've been trying to learn to say no to things. And it is a good position to say no to things. But, you know, there's a certain time in your because you don't know who's going to be on the gig or who's going to be in the audience. I mean, I think that it's more common when I chat with colleagues that some some of the gigs that really changed your trajectory were, you know, you were playing in some little dive and you didn't think anybody was there, but you still went in and you gave it everything. You know, you, you treat, if you're playing at Carnegie Hall, it's the same level of attention to details and excellence as then you're playing in some little dive bar. But chances are you'll get you'll get some amazing gig in a funny way from that little dive bar. You didn't go, oh man, this gig, jeez, oh, and just come in and phone it in. And I think that's the thing, also with that mindset of saying yes to everything. You also, you know, find out what you don't do well. You know, if you find if you get called to do a, a show, a Broadway show, and you have to go in and read the book and do all those steps to really be successful in that, you might say, hmm. Yeah, I could probably make good money doing that, but I don't really like doing that. It's not me. Mm -hmm. So I think um, all of that builds the character of a professional in ways that you probably don't even expect. You know, I think that's the cool thing is you might set up, set out and say, I'm going to, you know, uh, be a side person for singer songwriters. And then you end up doing scoring TV ads or, or whatever, you know, and the, there's so many different ways a career can, you know, break out that you can't know. And so you have to have that sense of adventure. <laughs> and again, as Kim was saying, like, you know, be, being prepared, having your musicianship together, you know, you have that, that's what you're bringing to every situation and having that openness of, we don't know exactly where it's going to go. So you need a little sense of adventure, a little, little courage, a little bit of courage, a little bit of sense of adventure, but definitely that grounding in musicianship. And I think there's a, also there's a little bit of, a, of the naivety of youth that plays into it too. I, I can remember when I was you know, 17 to 21 or so, I would ask anybody if I would sit in. I didn't care who they were. I would, I would walk up to the band and I would say, hey, can I sit in? They'd be like, okay, you know, you know, <laughs> most of the time I was, I was invited up to play and, and sometimes it went well and sometimes it didn't. And I always learned from it, but it also led to a lot of gigs. And I also had similar experiences where somebody hears you play one thing in some unlikely place. And then 10 years later, you get a call from that person. And next thing you know, you have a really nice gig. Mm -hmm. 
yeah the the that element of being on top of your game and playing with um i think a lot of soul and personality at all times is really important um there there you can you can be a generic um jack of all trades sort of player but i think the the players that ultimately get cool interesting gigs are the ones that put a lot of their own personality in it so they they're not saying hey i want this generic person i they're saying i want this player because of what they bring to the table it's unique yeah and and in addition to that th who's on time who's prepared who's clean <laughs> Right. who is easy to get along with, who is like kind of, you got to be a dream traveler. That's right. And you've got to plan ahead. Better and, not uh, be good in the van. And that word gets around, man. And, you know, like I was just thinking about Austin in particular all the time. So I say, well, how did you get to me, a classical guitarist? And they're like, oh yeah, well. So, so, so and so heard you and so and so said that you taught at this place and they said you were cool or and it a lot of times comes down to the way you are professionally and personally like are you are you easy to get along with and can we show up on time and nail it and sound like yourself. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah um, go ahead. Go ahead Kim. No, go ahead. No, I was just, I was just going to say there are that, that element, you know, even though, as I said earlier, it's school, it's not real life, but that element does come into play with, particularly with ensembles, mm -hmm. uh, juries, you know, mm -hmm. that's in the recital workshop for performance majors. That's one of the constants is, Hey, be ready to play, be on time, have your side, whoever your side people are, have them show up on time rehearsed it's actually amazing um that bad habits can be developed very early you it's know it's funny you say that because i have seen your comments on the jury sheets and i think it surprises students that you spend and you spend time on those things on the jury sheets i think that's good that you reinforce it yeah i mean of course to you awesome. but to them they're like well didn't you like my solo you know, yeah. and, and you're saying, well, you were five minutes late and your bass player wasn't ready. And, right. you know, that's important. Yeah, I've never lost a gig for being early. Right. For sure, I, I would expect to lose one if I was late. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, Julian, you touched on a, a, a thing that I think is, you said it as a positive, and I think there's a misconception in a lot with a lot of people about the role that teaching can play in your artistic life. Because what you said, if I recall it properly, was that you said to yourself, well, I have a teaching gig, so now I can play the music I wanna play. I don't have to spend my time running around doing these different gigs that are meaningful to other people. And um, I think that, I think the two things that I that sit with me about that is number one, in order to make that decision, you have to have put in the work to become a remarkably good teacher. And just because you can play really well and beautifully doesn't mean that you know how to convey that to others at a high level. And so there's that work that you put in. And then number two, there's a misconception, I think, that people think, well, I'm teaching, so I'm not really playing. But you found a way to say, like, I'm teaching, and so that gives me this platform to be an, an artist. In some ways, the artist that I want to be. 
And can you talk about that realization a little bit? Well, I have to be honest that part of it was financial. Mm -hmm. Just the, the freedom to, as I, I started to realize, as I you know got promoted at Berkeley and I started to make a little bit more money um, and I started to take gigs that were only you know, decent paying gigs on top of that, I, I realized that I, I did not have to get stuck on the treadmill of going out and doing things that I didn't necessarily want to do. So that was, that was, and, and is part of it too, but, um, the, the te just teaching even the most basic, simple material, you know, teaching people how to play major scales and, you know, every, every single time I do that, I, I try to, I mean, I play for them and I, and I try to play that major scale as beautifully as I can possibly play it, mm -hmm. you know, with, with dynamics and shape and tone. And, and I, I think, um, keeping that constantly in mind that every time I, I, I pick up my instrument and it's something I try to instill in my students too, that that is an opportunity to be musical and to, mm -hmm just throw a little extra beauty out in the world, you know, <laughs> in, in a world that is desperately needs it sometimes. And I, and so it can be just a, it can be really simple things. And, and within those things, the students do, do pick up on it. Mm -hmm. And when I go back to play, um, you know, after a long day of teaching, I still will, you know, usually practice for at least an hour or so at night. And that, that is also an important part of, of balancing those two things. And, and sometimes I'm inspired to play. <laughs> sometimes I'm just exhausted, but you know, I, all the distractions aside, um, um, you know, I can pick up my phone or look at my computer or I can pick up my guitar and do something with it. So mm. I always go to the guitar first. So I, I don't know if I've really answer the question or if I've kind mm -hmm. of watched it, but no, but I think that's great. I mean, that's really great. It all fits together. Uh, I, I see, um, teaching is also sort of, it's sort of a performance, mm -hmm. kind of a performance art. Um, mm -hmm. and I think about great teachers I've witnessed over the years or who have been my, my mentors. Uh, and I, and I think about how, thought-provoking they were for me and how and how inspiring and you know and I think oh I'm gonna, gonna steal that lick like I I saw Ed, I saw Ed Tomasi just give a b-tot thing once and I didn't get to take him as a student because I didn't go to Berkeley but I, this b-tot presentation was just I was so wowed by him and and I had teachers like him you know at Miami where it's just this his love for the material, his clear passion for the music, uh, you know, he was so excited about it and, and about all these details and the Sonny Stitt solo or, you know, whatever he happened to be talking about is, you know, contagious. And it makes me, that sort of thing makes me realize that um, with that sort of enthusiasm, you can have that a lasting effect on people. Ian, what are you thinking about? Well, first of all, everybody needs to take, every performance major should take Ed Tomasi's <laughs> class because it is so good. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's really good. Um, actually, I took that at the same time I was taking Cheryl and like 
just the bebop stuff all just like came into play it was really great so everybody who's listening do that but uh <laughs> but i really liked what you were talking about you know making everything musical that you're practicing you know and kim earlier likened you know these things in the proficiency like scales and all the basic things is the ingredients of music and i thought it was interesting that you were like i'm gonna take the opportunity while practicing this to make music and it's like man if you gotta if you gotta do things with flour you know you better bake some cookies you know yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, because you actually play them differently, right? It's like you don't just put the music on top of the notes. Like there's a physical reality to playing with dynamics or articulation or whatever, right? Yeah. If I, if I hear a student playing um, a scale or anything in arpeggio or just, you know, some sort of dry musical device and they're just kind of hacking their way through it, I just say, stop. Why are you playing? <laughs> Now let's try it a different way. Mm. Like let's make music. Let's put it into time. Let's do shape. Let's let's do dynamics. Have you thought about how you're holding the pick or where your hand is in the fret to clarify your tone? Well, mm. I think you know that is. I mean, playing music is single tasking, and it's the the highest form of being in the moment. But that's not a i think sometimes i i think as educators it, to younger students to say somehow uh, sometimes i think and i knew i i maybe i felt this way too when i was a younger player that that was some musical some magical place you would get to mm -hmm. that being in the moment when you know when so when you're saying that to your student you're saying no this moment right now you do that you might just be playing your scales with your metronome but that's that is the moment so if you if you every time you pick up your instrument you're in the moment that's your habit it's not separate than okay now i'm on stage on my gig at my recital or this club it's every day it, this is what it asks us to do is be in the moment and so when you say that to a student they've gotten in a habit of being this um unconscious kind of i pick you know because that's their habit. They probably pick up the guitar, noodle, and they're not connected to it. And, and what you're saying is you need to connect with that, even if it's just a scale, even if it's a whole note. Maybe, maybe it's a whole page of whole notes tied together. <laughs> you have to breathe and be with that the whole time. It's not magical. But when you're in that moment, it is magical. <laughs> well, part of the guitar and the nature of the guitar particularly the electric guitar the solid body where you can just pick it up and play a bunch of nonsense and not really pay attention to what you're doing you know and you can't really hear it that well and i've heard horn players do that so yeah <laughs> you, you can do that on classical and acoustic guitars too you can nonsense is not stylistically bound yeah it's, it's true <laughs> But just a, a lack of mindfulness, like the guitar, you can yeah. play unmindfully very yeah. easily, I think, due to the pattern-oriented nature of it, if you allow it to be pattern-oriented in, in, your, in your outlook. So mm -hmm. I think um, the old, I think John Schofield calls it letting your fingers do the walking or something like that. And mm -hmm. It's not paying attention to what you're doing. And it's something that can happen fairly fairly readily on guitar if you allow it to so 
my it's an ongoing mission for me to stamp that out <laughs> whatever possible in whatever, whatever gracious and gentle way that I can. It's a public service, really. It is, yes. <laughs> I'm providing that, that public service. We appreciate that. <laughs> oh, um, Julian, another thing that comes up, because we have a lot of students listening to this who are coming to Berkeley, and they're a little worried about, how am I going to build musical relationships? And um, you came to Berkeley from far away, um, maybe knowing a, of a few people, but um, can you talk a little bit about some of the musical relationships that you've made? Maybe you could just pick a, a couple or pick one or something that might've been unexpected, but developed over time um, in your more than 20 years of being here. Well, when I first got to Berkeley, I, well, the first thing I did is I started going to hear um, other faculty play recitals. Mm -hmm. And so the first person I heard play recital was Jim Kelly. Mm -hmm. And I went and he had a band then called the Sled Dogs and they were still, still a thing. And, and they were great. They played in 1A and, and, and I went up to, to Jim and I, and I complimented him and I said, I think we're of, of like mind musically in many ways. And, and um, so we kind of formed a, a natural, just, you know, we're not close friends. I'm not going to say that, but we are, we're buddies. And, you know, we, you know, I've had him on various musical bills with me and, and over the years, and there's a lot of mutual respect as, as players, um, just as, you know, for what each other does uh, as players. Um, and I, you know, just, I think the most important thing is just not being afraid to walk up to people and talk to them. And, and a lot of students that get here and they're just terrified. And the first thing I do is I say, look, you know, you need to start going to recitals and you need to find out who, who your musical compatriots are, who the, who the people that you need to be making music with are. And you need to, you need to talk to them and you need to set up sessions with them and you need to do that immediately. Did you ever have the opposite? Did you ever, were you ever asked to play something for the school and think like, I just, there's no way I could play with that person. It's not going to work. And then you take a chance and do it anyway. And it surprises you. I don't, th I don't think so. I don't think you always how. saw the opportunity. Yeah. I see, I see that. And I also know how to say, I learned how to say no too. So. Mm. And so maybe it, mm -hmm. it could be because I, I may have said no to some things that maybe I shouldn't have said no to. Oh, interesting. You know, and maybe I should have just gone ahead and done it, but I didn't feel that it was, I didn't feel, usually it was a, a thing where I didn't feel that I was the best choice for the gig or for the concert or the recital or whatever, whatever it may have been. And I'd say, I just, I mean, here at Berkeley, if somebody comes to you and they, they say, hey, can you do this? And you're not really the best person to do that. Then, I mean, look at the guitar department. If you can't find somebody in the guitar department who can do the gig right, then, I mean, where on earth can you possibly find it? So. See, that's great. I mean, I think that's really a cool statement that shows that you did find yourself. You find where you're comfortable, where you're comfortable stretching and where you're comfortable walking up to someone and saying like, 
hey, let's give something a try. And then you're also comfortable being a good colleague saying like, hey, thanks for coming to me. You know, the best person for this is this person, which is also an incredible skill that gets out. You know, it, it's not just that it's the best for the music, but it's also really good for your credibility as a person that you're willing to do that and you're secure enough to do that. Yeah, plus I don't want to go on the gig and sound bad. Suck. Yeah, <laughs> I just don't want to do that, you know. Uh, it's, I'm not going to allow it to happen. Right. It's just, I'm, you know, if it's outside of my, if it's, if it's outside of my comfort zone in a way that I want it to be, because I, I like being outside of my comfort zone, mm -hmm. but only in certain ways. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense, I, yeah. you know, I want to be challenged in certain ways, but I don't want to, I don't, I, I always want to be challenged, but I don't, I don't want to be challenged and then have it reflect poorly on the music as a whole. Mm -hmm. So that's the, yeah. you've got to get the right person for the gig. And if I'm not the right person, then I'm more than happy to pass it on. Mm -hmm. And I've done it many times. I am. Um, but I, you know, when I, actually, when I first got to to Berkeley at new faculty orientation, I met a former faculty member named Bruce Katz. Mm -hmm. He's a great B3 and piano player. And, and I just, I don't know who told me what he was into, but we just started to talk. And he said, well, Kevin Barry is leaving my band and I need a guitar player. Come over to my house. So I went over his house and we played, and then that turned into numerous tours, recordings, mm -hmm. and, and then basically every other gig that I got flowed right out of that because people were, oh, you're playing with Bruce Katz? Oh, oh wow. Okay, we're going to get you. So, um, yeah, and then unfortunately all the B3 players started calling me. So, <laughs> so I'll just say okay, but I'm not going to help move the B3. <laughs> That's great. Boundaries, everyone yeah. setting yeah. boundaries. Right? I'll do the gig. Not taking the B3 up the, the stairs. That's great. Uh, Cheryl, what's on your mind as our coffee kind of comes to, to the close? Well, thank you, Julian, for sh just um, sharing all your thoughts about universality of, of just musicianship and skills and, and nurturing that first. And um, just some of your thoughts about, yeah, always, always taking that care to play with musicality, you know? I think sometimes talk to students or, you know, if you, maybe you talk to, if you teach any folks that are maybe, they're not professionals yet, or they maybe they, or it's just if maybe they feel, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, to me, it's always that thing of what a better way to spend your time on planet Earth. <laughs> Making, even if you just play that one note and it's rich and beautiful and you're connected to it, that, that what, I, I don't know, I don't think any of us here could think of anything better to do with your time than. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. Oh. Well, there's things that come up close, you know, there's stuff, you know, there's a few things that come up, but. Yeah. All right, we, we have to do a part B at some time, a new, a new pot and talk about surfing. I totally oh, forgot yeah. about surfing and, you know, recovering from surfing injuries, which I remember. Oh, yeah, <laughs> surfing sorry. Surfing injury there. No, 
it worked out great because we got a great referral for hand injuries to the department because right. because of you and Matt Marvulio. So, <laughs> um, Ian, what do you have on your mind at the end here? Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it's a lot of stuff to sort of chew on. And yeah, I also kind of want to take the proficiency applications lab too. <laughs> yeah, well, how the, how the class goes is... Um... It's wholly dependent on on the students and the level of the students, and and then there's that you know the whole element of you know figuring out where people are, and you get people that are all over the place. You know, it's like teaching. Uh, you get like I think Cheryl also teaches harmonic considerations, and you know you get like a you get like an alto player with all eights, and then you right. get and you know somebody that has never ever played jazz before. Someone who hasn't considered harmony. Right, at yet. all. Then right. Have, then you have to somehow teach to the middle of all of that. Mm -hmm. So those extremes of, uh, of, of leveling and, and of, of, you know, independent skill sets are all part of the, the balancing act of, of teaching. That's great. Julian, thank you so much for being on Coffee Talk with us today. Well, it's been my pleasure. So coffee cheers, everyone. Thank you, Julian. Thank you, Cheryl Bailey. Thank you, Ian Steed. And uh, we'll see you next time on the next Coffee Talk. Cheers, everybody. Go practice. Yes, make it beautiful. <laughs>